The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. This week, I chatted with John Foley, our U.S. editor in New York, to get his take on the pretty extraordinary earnings being reported by banks like Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, and Citigroup. Basically, with the American consumer wobbling under COVID-19 lockdowns and concerned about the reopening of the economy, those institutions with big Wall Street presences and trading businesses are doing just fine. In a nutshell, it's a great time to be Goldman Sachs, not so much Wells Fargo. After that, I chatted with Ed Cropley, who's isolating somewhere in the English countryside, about British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's decision this week to ban all Huawei equipment from its 5G mobile networks by 2027. It's part of the geopolitical tussle between China and America over 5G technology and other things. Indeed, President Donald Trump crowed about the whole affair in the Rose Garden the next day. Whether that will entice allies like Germany, France, and Italy to play the same game, it's not so clear, says Ed. Finally, even though Xi Jinping and Trump may not see eye to eye on a lot of things, they do seem to agree on one thing. This week, China took a page out of Uncle Sam's fiscal handbook and moved ahead with the plan to tax its citizens abroad. The U.S. has long forced its passport holders to file and pay taxes on their foreign income. Believe me, I know all about this. But few other major economies have ever done so. Pete explains a bit to me why China may be doing this right now. Given the surging deficits of other more developed nations around the world, I would also bet the idea catches on elsewhere. Anyway, give a listen. Greetings, John Foley, from the center of the of where everything's happening in Wall Street. Uh, you've been writing a lot about, about all the banks and the investment banks having kind of blowout quarters. It's kind of surprising, I suppose. But I guess uh, explain this to me. Why is, why is investment banking having such a good lockdown? This is a great reminder, Rob, of how Wall Street is not the world, because we're seeing, you know, the economy in the U.S. in particular is is in a real slump. Unemployment's been, you know, at a record level. But here we have Wall Street firms like Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, Citi, um, just reporting incredibly strong trading revenue because markets have markets basically went up quite strongly in the last quarter, and volatility, which traders like, was high, but it wasn't too high. So we had like J.P. Morgan, for example, on Tuesday said that it. It had had a record quarter for trading revenue. That's a record. That's better than anything that happened before the financial crisis, anything that happened before COVID-19. Goldman Sachs on Wednesday saying that it had a 10-year high in terms of quarterly trading revenue. It's just insane. So markets are really powering these banks into really strong trading revenue, even as the economy overall is really in the doldrums. Well, it's, you're right. So let's let's take break it about down a little bit. So some of the big banks that have huge exposure to the American consumer. They are taking provisions, like loan provisions, because they expect some of these things to default. They have credit cards, auto, that kind of thing, right? Big so provisions, that's, yeah. Right, big provisions, because you know people out of work, that kind of thing. The the old style bank is probably going to have a hard time, not least that interest margin down because interest rates are down. Right, and there's a there's a long long running debate, of course, about whether you should have a traditional bank and an investment bank and a trading operation under the same roof. Right now, you're seeing that basically one is keeping the other one going. So the the consumer banks are all having to put aside huge chunks of their profit to cover future customers who won't pay back what they owe. But at the same time, the trading desks are making such a big profit that banks that have both can basically rob Peter to pay Paul. So So, so you want to be, you want to be, yeah, you want to be like a JP Morgan or a Citigroup rather than Wells Fargo. 
what you really want to be is a Goldman Sachs or a Morgan Stanley because they have the benefits of the trading, but very, very little exposure to those kind of credit businesses like banking. Uh, what you right. don't want to be is a Wells Fargo, which has is all banking and basically no trading and therefore ended up reporting a big loss on right. Tuesday. But of course, Goldman, as you point out in your piece, Goldman under uh, David Solomon, otherwise known as DJ Desol for his uh, extracurricular activities on the turntables, is that it's not quite what he was looking for. In a sense, he's trying to diversify the bank away from the riskier, as it were, fixed income commodities currency trading business um, into something like, well, consumer. They, they've got the Marcus checking accounts. They've got uh, the Apple uh, credit card. But this is sort of a completely Nobody's thinking about that right now. Everyone's like, oh, hey, we love the fact that they are just a giant black box of trades. Absolutely. Uh, he, he's going for all this kind of slightly fancy, you know, like the digital credit cards. He's, they're, they're signing a deal with Amazon.com. But really, right now, what's driving Goldman is still the trading business that he said he wanted to kind of diversify away from. But the, the broader story then with Goldman is you've got a company that is trying to shift away from what it's obviously really good at to lots of stuff that it might not be very good at at all. So this might be as good as it gets. Right, well, it, it's interesting, you look at the stock price, if I look at year to date, JP Morgan versus Goldman Sachs, Goldman, I mean, they're both down, but Goldman is down like a third less than than JP Morgan is. So, so the market seems to be liking the idea that you don't have too much access to or exposure to um, yeah. consumers. And the market's, the market's really fickle. Like right now, investors are always are looking for different things from banks. Right now, what they're looking at pretty much with a, with a laser focus is credit costs. So how much are the banks putting aside to cover bad debt? Then they're much less interested in things like, you know, what's the long term return on equity, all the kind of usual things that investors like. They just want to know how bad is it going to get? How much padding do you have? And that's what's driving share prices, I think, right now. All right. Well, thanks, John. Thanks for checking in with us from the, the Center of Finance. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Ed Cropley, how are you? I'm very good, thanks. Very good. Yeah, enjoying your lockdown day, whatever, 120 in London. Well, fortunately, I'm outside London, so I have a garden and I have access to lots of footpaths and parks I can run around in, so good. better and than many. Good. Well, you've been writing about this fascinating tussle between, um, the, well, Britain, China, the United States, all about Huawei, which, you know, has now, the British government has said that it would ban all Huawei equipment from its 5G mobile networks um, in seven years. That's kind of a big deal. It sort of certainly puts Boris Johnson into the good graces of um, his friend across the Atlantic, Donald Trump, but it has all sorts of other ramifications. What's, how, should we, how should we see the UK's decision this week? Ed. Um, well, as, as you said, it, it's a significant moment in the global geopolitical tussle between the United States and China. You know, this is a tussle that is sharpening at a very quick rate as well. So in January, just to turn the clock back a bit, in January, Boris Johnson enacted what Breaking Views thought to be a pretty good compromise by allowing Huawei to have 35% access to the, the non-super sensitive part of the network, that is the radio part of the network, the mobile phone masts that people see around the country. And so Huawei could supply kit to 35% of those masts. And then the assumption was that Nokia and Ericsson would have the other 65% between them. Right. So you've got a very nice balance between the three main equipment providers. And if you assume that Huawei is not an espionage threat, as Huawei says it is, and indeed, as, as the British intelligence services had determined it to be a 
a manageable threat, I think is, is the way they described it. If you accept all that, then you've got a very nice balanced and you've got a secure, well-resourced mobile phone network set up. Of course, then, something of course, happened in between. And then, and then lots has happened in between. On the Huawei front specifically, we had the US sanctions that were unveiled in May that targeted not so much Huawei itself, but more Huawei's ability to access US-made and US-designed microchips. At the moment, most of Huawei's microchips are manufactured in Taiwan, but a lot of them are a result of US intellectual property. And as of this edict in May, Huawei will not be able to get access to those in the future. So there are very legitimate concerns raised um, in the report that Boris Johnson based his decision upon. There are some legitimate concerns that long term in the future, Huawei might not be able to provide the absolutely tip top cutting edge microchips that will make its kit work well. And then the other concern, of course, is that if Huawei ends up sourcing its microchips elsewhere, and possibly even making them themselves in, in sort of a factory in Guangzhou or somewhere, then it's much harder for the UK intelligence services to determine whether those chips are also safe from a purely security point of view. So, so they basically made the case that, well, because of US sanctions, because of this uh, the lack of availability of certain you know, high, highly important components, it's become a little bit less safe to imagine Huawei having 35% of the market. I mean, that's, is that sort of, they're not sort of saying, well, we're doing this because actually Donald Trump and Xi Jinping don't get along and Hong Kong uh, has passed this horrific security law. And I mean, it's, it, they are making the case on safety and soundness of the network. Is that what's going on? That, that was it, that was it. So it was, it was the two, it was the two, um, those two features. And they're perfectly understandable and perfectly legitimate, to be honest. Um, it's a bit like you, you would not buy a car, for instance, from a supplier that you knew was was possibly not being able to provide you with a new carburetor in three years. Mm. So the UK government, indeed any government, would want to know that there are always going to be available spare parts for the telecoms. And they'll be secure. Store. I mean, because even if you thought that Huawei wasn't a risk, if you've decided that or the risk is, risk is manageable, you don't know who's creating those parts or those really important microchips that could go into it. So that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, do we really believe that's why they do you think it's network resilience really that's under? No. That's under, uh, to be honest, what do no. you okay, What's your view? Why are they really doing this? I believe that this is an, an need. Donald Trump sort of crowed about it last night in, in the Rose Garden in Washington. He's saying that I did this and, you know, we, we managed to get the Brits to do what we wanted. And essentially, this is part of the tussle between uh, the United States and China for supremacy in the race for technology of the 21st century. 5G technology is going to be one of the defining technologies of the next generation of our lives underpinning right. the way we live and the way our economies work um, and the way our factories function and, and the way we uh, export and, and yeah it, it's going to underpin everything we do so it's a domino that fell and, in the right direction from the US and, and, yeah and, and china saw this one coming and huawei invested very heavily for the last 20 years and has designed essentially the, the best kit for the best price to underpin and to make this type of technology work. America has nothing. Europe 
has nothing apart from Nokia and Ericsson. Well, let's let's get on to that. I mean, there's two questions I have. For, before we get onto the technology, will others follow suit? So if the US has successfully pressured the UK, now there's a special relationship, as they say, between the US and, and the United Kingdom. And certainly there's a bond between the two leaders at the moment, and they're part of the Five Eye network. Does that make it special in the sense that we won't see um, Italy, France, Germany, other large economies follow suit? I mean, that your view that you wrote on this suggests that there are other reasons that they might not want to. Yeah, I, certainly uh, America is pushing very hard to get a similar result from, from Berlin and Rome and Paris. And indeed, the Robert O'Brien, the US National Security Advisor, is on a tour of Europe to this end right now. But I think, as you mentioned, the UK has a special relationship and it ha- it was in a pr- fairly special position. And when I say special, it's a euphemism for being precarious and uncomfortable. London has always been closer to Washington politically because of you have, the, you have, the Saxon And you also have this, you have this trade negotiation that's going to come up at some point. And exactly. Because of Brexit, there are the peculiar foreign policy pressures um, that Boris Johnson has to observe. You also, of course, have the conduct in Hong Kong and, and the crackdown against democracy and freedom of expression in Hong Kong. That has particular resonance in Britain because it's a former colony that only went, it was handed back in 1997. So that plays politically very powerfully in the UK. Whereas in Germany, France, Italy, they don't have quite such a strong relationship with the US. They don't have the post-Brexit dynamics. They don't have such a close affinity with democracy in Hong Kong. So doubtless they will come under US pressure. But I think they have the ability to be, to resist it far more robustly, and I think that's what will happen. But of course, you, let's go back to the technology. I think I think that's right. It's just there's there are other reasons that the Europeans and other major economies may not quite fold uh, or keep hmm. Huawei out. But uh, let's go back to the technology you mentioned. So basically, this hands a victory, ultimately a market share, uh, to Nokia and Ericsson. Now, they are, of course, two European, you know, Swedish and Finnish companies. So I, I suppose in a, in a sort of simplistic way, you, the European Union should be should be favoring their local champions. I mean, given they do for everything else. Yes. Um, so, but I mean, where did they stand? I mean, are, are Nokia and Ericsson, I mean, you look at their combined market caps, we're, we're talking less than 50 billion euros. That's exactly, yeah. I think um, Ericsson's slightly bigger on about 32 billion and mm-hmm. Nokia on 25 or something. So, yeah, they're, they're decent sized companies, but are nowhere near the same league as, as Huawei would be if it was listed. Um, or, you know, Cisco is up in the hundreds of millions. millions so the, these yeah. are still relatively small companies to be responsible for the future of a technology that is going to underpin humanity for the next 25 years. It's a fairly precarious situation for the world in a way, but you need to have lots and lots of equipment suppliers in order to ensure your networks are stable and well-resourced. And so... Yeah, competition generally is a good thing. Competition is generally a good thing. And it's never been truer in this instance. So now... We're contemplating the UK, as indeed in the US, of just having two equipment suppliers building this infrastructure. If one of them has a wobble and and hits the skids, that means that the other one will be the sole provider of equipment. That's a very, very unstable and, and you know suboptimal situation to be. Um, quite apart yeah. from the market pricing power, there's also, you know, if, if one piece of technology is suddenly found to be deficient, you have a system-wide problem. 
Right. So is there so is there not? I mean, is this I mean, the, the other way to think about this is there's there, there are a couple options. One is Huawei could uh, decide to sort of get out of markets, couldn't it? Couldn't it decide to sell its businesses, you know, in places like the UK or Europe where it's just it's persona non grata, which then could be given, I don't know, Samsung or, you know, some other startup type. Someone who wants to get in this business could potentially capitalize on that to create more competition. Is that a possibility, you think? Um, you know, arguably, there's no, there isn't a business in the UK left to sell. I mean, I imagine you can still buy Huawei kit in the UK until midnight on December 31st this year. Mm-hmm. So I imagine that Huawei sales guys will be working overtime until Christmas to sell as much as they can. And then after that, all it is, is is maintaining and providing spare parts to existing kit for the next seven years. So there's there's very little residual value there. I think in terms of providing more competition, the most promising solution from a sort of global perspective, from a global consumer perspective, are the initiatives loosely under the umbrella of what's called Open RAN, which stands for Open Radio Access Network, which is an initiative championed by the big mobile phone companies, Verizon, AT&T, Telefonica in Spain, Vodafone in the UK. And this is essentially trying to develop a a software-based solution to 5G technology that that can then run on a relatively standardized piece of hardware that you could almost buy off the shelf, rather than the, the highly specialized hardware that Ericsson, Nokia, and Huawei make at the moment. So the idea is that Open RAN is a software-based solution. That means that the barriers to entry are vastly reduced because it doesn't require such enormous upfront capital costs. And with the diversity of actors running their software solutions hardware, that is that's what is, is being invested in at the moment. I think Washington and London and indeed other European governments will probably start throwing more and more money in that general direction. But it's still two or three years away from any sort of commercial um, deployment. Cool. All right. Well, Ed, keep uh, keep sheltering in place. Enjoy your garden, and uh, keep an eye on this story much, as Rob. it develops. And we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, it's a fascinating one. It's gonna there are many iterations to run. Yeah. No, it really is. Greetings, Pete Sweeney in Hong Kong. How are you? I'm good, Rob. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I was really, really intrigued by this piece you wrote about China's extraterritorial tax push. I wanted to kind of tease out some of the elements of this, not least because I'm sure there are lots of Chinese who are in shocked and horrified that they'll be taxed wherever they might be. There is an analog for this. I mean, the United States has been doing it for forever, it seems, those of us who've lived abroad. So step back, what is China actually doing with its new tax rules? Well, for starters, they've been working on this idea for a couple of years. The, I mean, obviously looking at the U.S. as a model in this case and kind of setting an example they'd like to follow um, in terms of taxing you know, Chinese residents living overseas. A lot of them make a lot of money. Some of them are super wealthy. Um, the Chinese government doesn't get any of that. You know, so to them, their mind, it made sense for them to follow the, the U.S. model. They're starting to do it this year, in fact, and actually collect money, which I think has startled a lot of Chinese people. And they're starting in Hong Kong, which is kind of odd given the eruptions that are happening in Hong Kong. You know, there's there's a significant mainlander minority living here. They work in finance. They work throughout the economy. 
Um, one of the big incentives for them to move here, of course, is that Hong Kong has a 15% tax rate, one of the world's lowest personal income taxes. That's the top rate. Whereas China, the top rate is 45%. So you save a lot of money coming down there. And that helps a lot given when you move to Hong Kong, as I did, everything else becomes twice, three times, 10 times more expensive. Right. Um, well, it doesn't help you as a Yank. American no, it doesn't do that much for it. But that's the other thing. That's the other thing with the rule, though, is that like U.S. law, um, there's another big difference. The U.S. Um, exempts the first, uh, I think it's 105,000 U.S. dollars. Something like that. Right? right, something like that. China doesn't do that. And the interesting thing is you set aside the principle of whether it's good for a government to tax globally or not. China's tax brackets are those of a developing economy, a very poor economy, right? So, I mean, the so average. What does that mean? Very high marginal rate? Well, the, 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 it's a progressive system like with the right. U.S., but the top marginal rate is 45 percent and it kicks in. I mean, in the U.S., the top rate is what, 37 percent? Yeah, 37 percent. When you're making over, yeah. you have to make over like half a million yeah. dollars a year as an individual to hit that. OK, in China, you only have to make one hundred and thirty seven thousand dollars a year to hit the top bracket. And that's fine if you live in like Chengdu, you know, or something and your rent is really low and, you know, you can eat all this delicious Chinese food to next to nothing. But, you know, Hong Kong is one of the most expensive cities to live in the world. Rents here are stratospheric. Food price inflation last month was like 11 percent. It's just getting hammered by the supply chain shock to the food chain here. And now you're going to make it less interesting for mainlanders to move here. I mean, if I had the choice and I was a mainlander for the same tax rate, I would live in Shenzhen. Right. You know, where the rent is going to be half and I can do all these things and I can still be in finance and blah, blah, blah. And I can commute across the border. Why am I going to move to so home? What, so then let's think about it. So from a philosophical perspective, a fiscal perspective, I can understand it, even though, you know, again, as an American who's lived abroad for so much of their life, it is I find it infuriating that Uncle Sam is always able to reach into my pocket. Um, now, of course, there is an exemption, as you said, for the first hundred five thousand. And then there is you can credit your the foreign tax you pay against your U.S. tax. And I imagine there'll be some of that allowed for China. In other words, if you pay, I mean, they're not going to, they're not going to hit someone with 45% tax rate if they're living in the U.S. and paying U.S. taxes, for instance, right? Well, no, you'll get a credit for the yeah. tax you pay, but you don't get that carve out. So basically, right. look, if that you're first, Chinese and you're living part. in, if, if you're living in Western Europe and you're paying it like, you know, it's like Swedish tax rates or something, it's not going to make a difference. Right. You know, whatever tax you're paying in Europe is going to be a credit against your Chinese tax and you're going to end up same as you were before. But, you know, in lower tax jurisdictions like Singapore, you know, like Hong Kong and like the United States, yeah, it I, could make a big. Di yeah, right. So, I mean, it could yeah. make a big difference. So I've always thought that the, the Europeans should do this. For instance, the French. If you write, I'm sure you know how many French expatriates there are in Shanghai. Oh my or, God. So or I think there are more French in, <laughs> in Hong Kong than there are Brits at this point. Or Italians or people who have escaped their high, relatively high tax home countries, live in London or live in the US or live in, in, in Asia or Dubai, places like that, and, and reap the benefits, harvest that arbitrage, right? And then the French state or the Italian state or the whatever don't receive any of the benefits of that. I've always thought, given the, the, the nature of deficits going up, that this would happen at some point. It would be inevitable that, that Europeans. But it's, it's, so it's sort of funny, like that would be driven by the exigencies of needing to reduce deficits and debt at home. Whereas this is not doesn't seem to be that's not the problem. This isn't because the fiscal authorities in China are trying to raise more funds, is it? Well, I mean, in theory, they'll get some more money, but I mean, obviously, 
practically speaking, look, so the U.S. is is extraterritorial because it can be, because it's super powerful. It's got, you know, the control of the dollar system, its military relationships and alliances give it this outsized ability to go in, you know, a foreign government and say, listen, you're going to start, I mean, not just like individual tax, but FATCA, all these all these other regulations that it, it enforces abroad, like this massive sweep. The U.S. can get away with it. Can Italy go through and bang down the doors in other countries? I don't know. I mean, can Serbia? Probably not. The European um, Union could, I suppose. It could, so yeah. That's not, they're so far from that. So it's a, for China in the current political moment, the diplomatic moment going not its direction, it seems quite a stretch to think that they would go over to the U.S. and expect to reasonably get like a sit-down meeting to talk about, you know, American banks or whatever, handing over data you know, on their, their Chinese savings accounts and so on and so forth. Yeah, but, but the, Chinese, the Chinese banks, of course, will. Uh, they will. That information. They will, yeah. And there may, be, there may be some incentive for, you know, American banks to, I don't know if they have to hand it over. The way it works, if you have a foreign bank account as an American, you are obliged to reveal that. I'm not sure right. to what extent, you know, the IRS or whatever delves into that information. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I know as an American banking here that like the Hong Kong banks are quite anxious about banking Americans because of the additional regulatory load mm-hmm. that we bear, you know, so now that's going to be sort of true of the Chinese, like you're going to have to decide as a banker, like, you know, do we want to bank Chinese people if we're going to get these demands? Like, why not just like not bank them? I mean, right. but it's to your, to your point, like it's going to really it really sends a message to the diaspora, to all these Chinese people outside the country. You know, like in the end, it's their obligation to honestly report their income, you know, and even if the United States and Europe doesn't decide to cooperate with the information exchange, I mean, they're still technically breaking the law by not paying their taxes. Right. So Um, what is that? (laughs) Let's talk about that. What is the message? What is the bigger overarching message the Chinese government is sending to its diaspora here? Well, it's interesting because up till now, most of the message has been political, right? Like, you know, we're going to monitor you at college. You know, we're going to have party cells on your campus. Um, with this new Hong Kong national security law, they've made it illegal to, you know, undermine or um, or call for the overthrow of the Chinese state or the Hong Kong government, even abroad. But it's been, you know, it most of it has not been financial up to this point. I mean, a lot of wealthy Chinese people, a lot of officials, you know, have houses, have real estate, have jobs, you know, have second families, God help us, outside of China. They are well hedged. With this, I mean, like this doesn't just tax their income, it taxes capital gains, a capital taxes, real estate sales. And basically China is saying, you know, look, you know, politically, personally, everything, we regulate you. And now we're going to regulate your income too. And you're going to give us a share. And and that's that. Right. And, but is it, are they, are they now giving a signal? We don't want you to, to go abroad. We don't want this diaspora of expatriate workers. We want, or even saying we want you to go to, I don't know, is there some message? I mean, cause I would have thought that the Chinese government was was encouraging people, for instance, to move to Hong Kong or to take up jobs in Hong Kong. Um, well, and that's exactly what gets, yeah, I'm sorry to, to interrupt. I mean, that's exactly what puzzles me. When I first saw this, I was like, wait, wait, this seems backwards. You want more mainlanders living in Hong Kong, right? You've got this huge political problem here. A lot of it is related to resentment of Beijing's policies. You've got a naturally pro-China um, constituency. You can relocate to Hong Kong. Isn't that going to make things a little easier, having a bigger base of political support there? But now this like that they've taken away the financial incentive. Well, unless you did over for the United wanna, States. In, maybe you just want to starve Hong Kong of talent, capital, human capital. Could be, could be. I mean, it's it's a mystery. But um, but I yeah. mean, clearly that the overall message has been that they're saying like you know wherever you go, 
you know, we're your government and we don't care if you throw away your passport, you know, you're still Chinese to us and we're going to treat you that way. Mm. Well, as, as ominous as that sounds on a tax, <laughs> from a tax perspective, as an American passport holder, it's no different. <laughs> yeah, we have absolutely nothing to say about it. Absolutely true. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Pete. Keep up the good work. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Rob. That's our show for this week. Thanks to my guests and hats off to our producer, Jamie Lowe in Hong Kong, Oliver Taslich in London and Lee Anderson in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast exchange on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your audio cravings. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition of Vita Sen and stay healthy. <laughs>